This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, January 29th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, Donald Trump calls Nikki Haley bird brain. And this is not just insulting, and it is. It contradicts what we see of Nikki Haley. She's bright, she knows the issues, she's on top of things, or so we thought. Because on Meet the Press, host Kristen Welker exposed a gaping hole in Ambassador Haley's basic understanding of rudimentary current events. If he's convicted of a felony, 42% of voters in New Hampshire and nearly a third of Iowa's GOP caucus goers said Mr. Trump would be unfit for the presidency. Are you staying in this race in case Donald Trump is convicted of a crime ambassador? I've never stayed in this race because of court cases. Um, you know, really, I don't know what all the court cases are. I haven't paid attention to what he's won, what he's lost, what he's fighting for, any of that. She doesn't know. I don't know. As if asked, hey, do you think the poodle's going to beat the rhododendron on The Masked Singer this month? Oh, I don't know. I haven't really kept up. What's that? Oh, heard about that show. I don't know if Nikki Haley knows this. This news that she doesn't know about, it's in the newspaper. It's, in fact, in all the newspapers. It's in the right-wing press. It's in the left-wing press. It's everywhere. Court cases? Oh, are you talking about night court, the reboot? Yeah, I haven't really kept up on it. What? Like, oh, a court, like a quart of milk? Oh, no, we're dairy-free in the Haley household. Sorry, can't help you with this court thing. There's actually a playbook for answering questions like this that you might not want to answer. If you're a Trump-supporting politician, yes, get asked this on the news. You're supposed to brush it off by saying something about a rigged system. If you're feeling particularly saucy, you talk about Hunter Biden, there's a redirect. If you just want to be your regular old rock-ribbed Republican of the people, you say something like uh, what Tim Scott said when asked about Donald Trump's $83 million defamation ruling on This Week This Week. Myself and all the voters that support uh, Donald Trump supports a return to normalcy as it relates to what affects their kitchen table. The average person in our country, Martha, isn't, they're not talking about lawsuits. As a matter of fact, what I have seen, however, is that the perception that the legal system is being weaponized against Donald Trump is actually increasing his poll numbers. And then Tim Scott added NNN Hunter Biden. Yeah, that guy. But Nikki Haley... She does not have to sing from the same hymnal of ignorance. A very acceptable answer that wouldn't piss off potential voters. I don't think any honest answer would. No one who's going to vote for you anyway, who's going to be so offended that you gave any credence to the fact that this guy's facing four criminal charges, at least uh, two and a half of them are pretty strong, is when asked, well, what about his court cases? Say, they're not good, right? Say something like, Listen, without distracting ourselves from all the details of all the court cases, and some of which are stronger than others, I don't think a criminal conviction helps your average person, does it? And then you go on from there. You don't dwell, but you also don't pretend that on this issue, your IQ plunges 80 points, perhaps thus confirming the avian-brainedness as alleged. 
court case? Wait, what do you mean? Is a judge involved? Are there Bibles to swear on? I'm just going off on what I saw in L.A. Law one time. Come on, Nikki. You don't have to make a federal case out of it, but you do have to at least acknowledge at least a couple of them literally are federal cases. On the show today, I care about the plight of Native Americans, contrary to past pronouncements. Actually, I never said I didn't. It was just the stuff in the museums, but I came to care. But first, Dr. Death is a series on Peacock based on the podcast of the same name, Dr. Death, not Peacock. Each season of Dr. Death tells a different tale of a doctor who delivers death unto their patients. We are joined by the showrunner of season two, Ashley Michael Hoban, who talks about the journalism involved in this season of Dr. Death about the Italian surgeon Paolo Macchiarini. Season two of Dr. Death is available now on Peacock and showrunner Ashley Michael Hoban up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He's experimenting on people. I want to see it with my own eyes. My team and I have to deal with very extreme cases. Just the ones extreme enough that nobody will notice when you kill them. History is built on lines that we must be willing to cross. What'd you do, Paolo? What did you do to them? We have to figure out a way to stop this guy. She's sitting there with a bloody time bomb in her throat. Clear. Paolo Macarini was a surgeon who experimented with stem cells and trachea implants. He was considered to be in the possible running for a Nobel Prize in medicine. In fact, he worked for the Swedish hospital that awards the Nobel Prize. There was one problem. The trachea transplants didn't work and almost everyone he operated on died. And he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling fellow doctors, investigative journalists, trail of dead patients. In fact, you might wonder how did he get away with it for so long? That is all covered in the new Peacock series. It's season two of Dr. Death. If the phrase Dr. Death sounds familiar to you, podcast listeners, because yes, it is all based on source material from a podcast. And we're joined with the showrunner of the TV series, the Peacock series of Dr. Death, Ashley Michael Hoban. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. Are you a big podcast uh, whodunit true crime person? I'm a big podcast person. I think I like the second I wake up, I don't want to be alone. So like the second I wake up, I turn on podcasts. And you know, eventually when you get through all of the news stuff and all of the wait, wait, don't tell me, you end up with true crime. <laughs> I think that's where we all inevitably end up. So yes, I can say I'm a fan. So there is something about the um, 
about this kind of subject that is very popular with podcasts. And I have a theory as to why it's, um, well, first of all, there's, there's a hook for female listeners. Second of all, it's kind of nice to have structure. Like it's called Dr. Death. You know, the doctor does it in the end. And that sort of handholding actually works pretty well in the podcast form. Is that as appealing in the uh, TV serial form where I think, I mean, my theory is that viewers are a little more sophisticated when it comes to TV. They don't need as much handholding. So, uh, but to go back to my question, do you think that it readily is as appealing to TV viewers as it apparently is to podcast listeners where this this genre of podcast is perhaps the most popular? That's a really good question. You know, I think in the podcast form, you have the ability to sort of like step out what makes the guy so terrible. The, 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 you know, the, the, the tricky thing about the show was that we sort of needed an audience to fall in love with him a little bit in order to understand how he got away with it for so long or else you're, you're, you're sort of not, you're not on the, you're not on the side of the team that's fighting against him, you know? So we need those people to be, we need audiences to be on their side and understand what they're going through. Because if you just come at, come at the story at the end, um, it seems ridiculous. Like the things he told right. his fiance seem ridiculous and the medicine seems ridiculous. But if you, so, so the process of like really d- diving into the medicine and understanding how he was able to do that was the challenge of the show. Right. So the way in is the audience surrogate is the journalist. And this is all true. A journalist for a news magazine show who profiled him and fell in love with him and was going to get married with him. And then if there is the question, okay, how do, how do we make sure she is the audience surrogate and that the audience likes and identifies with her? Well, I'd say 90% of that work is done by casting Mandy Moore. Mandy is one of those people that you you just love to love. <laughs> you know, right, she's right. she is she is she brings um all of the sort of like effervescence and energy that she has on screen she has in person. So yeah, that was an easy choice when she when we found out she was interested. It was like that made yeah you're right that was the, the that took care of a lot of the work for us. Right, and so we watch him through her eyes, and he seems charming, and he comes with great credentials and also his trail of successes. At this point, there's no whiff that he's doing anything wrong. And even though we know that a journalist is not supposed to fall in love with her subjects, in fact, it gets said it's a mantra on the show. And I want to ask you about that. It happens. So from a writing, directing, show running standpoint, what are the pitfalls you have to avoid to make her falling in love believable, but also not make her seem like an obvious simp, but also make him seem evil enough that you wind up hating him? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, well, they come together, Benita and Paulo come together at such a particularly vulnerable moment in her life. And this is, you know, this is stemming off of the true story that she was going through. Um, there was a death happening in, in her life and her family, and she was kind of really desperate for uh, some kind of avenue out of the darkness that she was feeling. And then she met this guy and it felt like okay, there is hope. There is hope out there in the in the world of medicine and in life and love. And there's something there to be had. Um, because you're right. It's like, if, if it's called Dr. Death, we know that something bad is going to happen. That's right. <laughs> scene, scene one, protests outside a clinic. You killed people. Mm-hmm. It's not as if we're hiding the ball on what this guy does. No, yes. no, there is no hiding it. And so then the real, the, the, the like kind of goal and challenge was to, Explain the medicine away in a way that it feels hopeful, and you wonder, start to wonder if, 
a, it's a, it becomes a question of, is it on purpose? Is it nefarious? Where is, where, where is the Dr. Death uh, moniker coming from? Is it coming from a place of, you know, sociopathy or um, is he misunderstood? Because in his mind, I think even to this day, if you ask him the real Paolo Macchiarini, he is misun- he's just a misunderstood doctor whose groundbreaking treatments uh, are being rejected, you know, so... Yeah, but there has to be such a massive amount of uh, willful ignorance to think that that's true. He might want it to be true. He, he is a real surgeon. He did invent this treatment. It just never worked. And he, he either faked results. Would that be accurate to say he faked results or it, didn't uh, in, didn't properly document that it did work? Both. So how would he? <laughs> Both yeah, of those yeah. things are true. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that the majority of audiences are going to come away. Um, I think I hope that you come away understanding his point of view, but really at the end of the, at the end of the show, he is the bad guy and he made awful choices and he, he, he sacrificed people consciously, you know, on what level I don't know, but consciously in our, in our show where he's sacrificing people for the, you know, f- to further his medicine, which is a financial benefit to him and gives him, um, gives him the renown and the power and the influence and the money to keep going. Right. And so my audience who hasn't seen the show or listened to the podcast understands what he was doing in his sentences. He was implanting plastic into people and you would say, oh, they'd normally reject the plastic and die. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. But he had, maybe he believed this part that his stem cell magic would work. I mean, stem cells are real. Maybe he convinced himself that all the results of his people dying, they would have, I mean, this is what he said to defend himself. Maybe he really believed they would have died anyway, or he had a strong, there was a strong shot of it working. But it brings me to the question, a lot of there's con men are so, they're interesting, we're drawn to them. But a very, very common explanation about con men is, you know, I think at some point they began to believe it. And I don't know how often that actually is true in terms of human nature, but for you, someone writing that character, I guess it's helpful if it's true or true enough. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I think it's easy for us to I think it's easier for us to wrap our minds around somebody like that if we're like, well, they believe it. You know, it's like we're, mm-hmm. we're humanizing them in a way that they might not always deserve. But you are right in that every at, the, at least at the beginning, Paulo was. This was also coming around the time when stem cell research was going to be the miracle to everything that we that we haven't yet cured. And the throat and the trachea is a pretty difficult place to work medically because everything that you breathe in touches that. You know, there's it's filtering in all of the germs. So yes, um, there, there. Yeah, I think there's a hope there, and I think he was kind of always looking for an adjustment. It's like, okay, it's going to ne- work next time, and this is just these are casualties that are sort of necessary for me. But, and so I don't know that he, I don't know, you know, we, we don't know what's inside of his heart and mind, but um, I think, yeah, I think it's a, it might be a little bit of a cop out to say that these people really believe it in the moment because at a certain point, you know, he was working with terminal patients and then he moved on from terminal patients and these people were not going to die and they were going to live healthy lives forever until he put these tracheas inside of them and at that that's the point at which you know you sort of um it loses its the the, the argument of he believed it loses its credibility because it feels like then at that point it, they're just guinea pigs for him so i wanted to ask you about 
I'm a journalist mm-hmm. and the journalistic questions I perceive there is uh, early on uh, Mandy Moore's character who's based on a real life character who wrote, who's covered an interesting Vanity Fair article. You know, she got duped by this very charming guy, Mm -hmm. but also with a lot of red flags. She is a journalist. He was a source. And not only do they say it as a mantra, don't, and we could say it here, don't fuck your sources. Mm -hmm. You even put it in one of the, as seen on uh, (laughs) pre-rolls, don't fuck your sources. Don't fuck your sources. Yes, that's like before, as seen on last episode. Don't fuck your sources. Um, so question one, do you have a couple of F words you could say per episode via Peacock rules? No, Peacock is limited? open. Peacock lets us do what we want. So Very good. <laughs> but was all that there? All, all that was there because I'm sure she in real life they had that conversation. But there's also a little bit of backlash to the many uh, depictions of female journalists who do in fact sleep with a source. And it gets criticized mm-hmm. a lot when, a, as a trope. Now, in your case, it really happened. But did you want to address that specifically? Because you know it's a trope and you didn't want to put it out there um, just wantonly? Yeah, you know, I think the goal is, is that you watch her go through the process of falling for this guy and you watch her make that decision and then you watch her regret that decision and and you you empathize with what she's going through instead of um coming at it from a place of of judgment and you know and it does happen um it's a such a part and this is such a particular you know they were spending so much time together and and i think you know, sleeping together and uh, meeting each other's families and being in- in- involved in each other's lives and traveling together, th- their relationship became so much more than an affair that I think, um, I think it, it sort of sets the, it apart from the trope in a way. And, and, you know, we show her, we try to show her fact checking right off the bat um, because she does, she, she, she checks his, stories and they, and they check out, which is, you know, leads you to a whole nother conversation about the peer review process in medicine. But, but, you know, with the exception of this Pope story, which is, you know, nutsy cuckoo, um, (laughs) she did her research and it all checked out. And so it's, and, and when you're being swept off your feet like that, I can imagine that it would be, um, you know, we all, we all do this. We all, we all date people and see red flags at the beginning and, and think that maybe it's it's going to be okay, or we can work around them, or they're just a just a whatever, and you you ignore them. We all do that. You have do you or the network have audience research about the gender breakdown of who watches Doctor Death? You know, I'm not. I I would imagine that that there is somewhere. Um, I do not. I would imagine that because I I know that women consume true crime at a, at a pace that feels unhuman. I would imagine that we have a, a <laughs> yes. female audience, but I, but I hope we have a, I hope it's, I hope it's evenly distributed, but I'm, I'm actually not sure about the breakdown. That's well, that's, pro- that's probably good. And that probably is good for you in your process. But I was just wondering if any of the specifics about this show are not, I wouldn't say geared for a female audience, but might mm. hit them the specifics of, uh, this or season one might hit them a little differently than a male audience or harder, do you think? Certainly. I mean, I'm a woman, so I'm going to come at it from from a different perspective than Patrick was going to come at it. You know, and, and part of the reason why he wanted me to take over the season was because he said, you know, that we have this love story and this woman at the at the helm of it and he wanted a woman to tell that story you know he didn't you know so yeah of course there's there's always going to be and that's that's 
that's the the question of voices and diversity in voices, right? So we we all can come at a story from there's one story we would all come at it from a completely different perspective. Yeah, there's also these, you know, these male savior figures and it mm-hmm. I think plays differently for uh well, when your love, your supposed love has betrayed you just as he's betraying patience. It's different. Right. I want to I think relatedly and you talked about the pandemic. Do you think that there were some moments in here that were either well, you would know consciously or maybe even subconsciously addressing much of what we went through of science sort of being on trial and also maybe beyond science being on trial, science being this argue debatable point where you can put it on a lawn sign or you can rebut it or you Mm. can rebut the rebuttal of the idea of trusting the science. Because that's how it landed to me. There were some scenes, especially in the last few episodes, Mm. talking, uh, some of the doctors talk about the imperfections of science. And I wonder how informed you think that was by the big debate thrust upon us uh, by the pandemic about science. Well, you know, I I think... The moral here is what I what I would wish for people to take away is questioning science, but but it's actually you know Gamelli's character, the three whistleblowers character, they're actually sticking closer to science than Paulo ever has, and I think you know the loopholes in the scientific process, which is not the science of like literally the science of it, but you know the process in which. They're um, they're publishing papers and they're peer reviewing these papers, and that process is imperfect. And really, when you go back to the science, the actual science of it, and go back to the facts of it, and take the steps necessary, because that's that's the big the big reveal of of, of Paulo's medicine. Ma- the magic of his medicine is that he never did any of the trials, and if you don't do the work, then you could say anything works. If you do, you know if you. If you don't have to prove it, then anything's possible. Um, so the, the the you know the proof, the proofing of it is the science that we want to fall back upon. You know, I do, I also don't want people to kind of like take. I know that I know that when you hear the title Doctor Death and you watch this show, it's easy to kind of like shift into the histrionics of I will never go to the doctor again and I'll never trust the doctor again. But in fact, there are many many more doctors in this season and last season and. It, in the world, factually, that are working to take care of people um, that far outweighs the yeah. doctor deaths of the world. Sure. Doctor um, La- doctor non-death, doctor lack of death. You don't get a show greenlit, yes. but that's the normal course of things. That's right. Maybe even doctor Dr. Life. Doctor yeah. avoid doctor death. Life. I like that. <laughs> doctor stave off death. Yeah. That's the next Delay thing. for a little while death. Exactly. <laughs> that's, ba- that's the unstated type of doctor most of us go through. <laughs> and finally, my last question for you, Ashley, is yeah. why is it so hard to do the right thing? Oh, goodness gracious. You got to watch Dr. Death season two to really see. No, you know, I, 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 that was a really, it was, that was a moment I think in the writer's room where we sort of were like, you sigh and you think back on all of the people that spoke up and all of the work that they had to keep doing to hold this guy accountable. And on both sides, you know, Benita's side on the personal side of Paulo's life and the the whistleblowers on the medical side, we make it harder for ourselves to do the right thing. You know, we make it harder for ourselves. And 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 the way to make it easier is to keep supporting the people that are doing the right thing. So, you know, that speaks to the the sort of um, 
support of whistleblowing and the philanthropic branch of of the production company that produced the show that that is working really hard to sort of lay groundwork for patient advocacy and patient care. So hopefully it gets easier to do the right thing every every time. Ashley Michael Hoban is the showrunner for season two of Dr. Death on Peacock. Thank you so much. Great talking to you, Ashley. This was so fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. And now the spiel. The other day I talked about news I wasn't much interested in. People took that as news that I think is unimportant. No, I'm just saying I'm not reading any more stories about water in the West. Does it take 1.1 gallons to make an almond? So they say. I shall continue to eat almonds and perhaps worry in the back of my mind. No, in the back of your mind or whoever reads the stories about water in the West about how they're going to get all that water for all those almonds. I'm not saying it'll all work out. I'm saying there's only a certain number of things that I could actively engage with. Another item on that list was the return of relics from museums to the places that the relics originated from. Yes, I know what's going on. I've read a few stories about this. They always seem the same. I'm not going to go over. I'm not going to recapitulate why I say I'm not interested in that, especially because there's an update. I am now interested in one aspect of this story, and this is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA. NAGPRA is has been on the book since the 90s, but it's really begun to be enforced. In fact, all across the United States, we have signs that we will get to of museums saying we need to do the right thing now. So my take, if you have brains, if you have bones, and descendants want those brains and bones, you gotta give them back. Let's say you're a museum with an Arapaho display, and the Arapaho say, take down that display. Don't store the bones or brains of Arapaho people. There is basically no choice, nor should there be a choice, of displaying that in your museum or holding that in the basement of your institution. You must defer to the Arapaho on the point of displaying the Arapaho. And as with the Arapaho goes every other native group, including the descendants of slaves. It's not only ethical, it's almost the least you could do. So the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act says, we're sorry, here are the remains of your people back. And that sounds simple enough, does it not? It does not. Let us go to Texas, where the University of Texas has remains that the Mikangarza tribe says are their ancestors. But the problem is that the Mikangarza is not a federally recognized tribe. That is a giant problem because by law, no one can give back remains to a tribe that is not federally recognized. It would be compounding the problem. KUT Radio quoted Maria Roca, an elder of the Miyakon Garza tribe. So UT is saying that spirit can wait three or four more years, 10 more years in agony, in our perspective, in agony can wait 30 more years. So I'm saying to myself, if their parent or their grandparent was in agony, would they just postpone it for a few more years? No, no. Well, I would say it's in the tradition of anthropologists and museums to not be in agony. They would be, these people we're talking about, would be considered dead and incapable of feeling any kind of pain. We have a couple of irreconcilable tensions here. 
So what's the big deal if a museum, maybe you're asking, just do the best you can. Be respectful of the native or indigenous communities that are asking you to be respectful. Dispose of their remains as best you can. Either give it to the people or if you can't, have a burial. This is what the University of Pennsylvania Museum is doing. They are in possession of 20 body parts of formerly enslaved people, so they have planned a burial. But DNA testing showed that one skull had indigenous DNA, which raised the possibility that the respectful burial was in fact a violation of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Of course, why they test the skulls? Because they didn't want to make a mistake. None of this is close to the realm of acceptable to the Penn Museum's main or at least most vocal critic, Abdul Ali Muhammad. He was quoted by local radio station WHYY. My body was hot. My heart was pounding. I was really enraged, really angry at knowing this information. Muhammad has alleged the former curator of the museum has lied about being able to prove the origins of all the remains in the collection, and she has sued him for defamation. In Cleveland, as is the case with New York's Museum of Natural History, the museum there is covering up exhibits that don't have remains, but may have funerary items, or in some cases, just canoes or masks used by Native American tribes. Here's ABC Channel 5 Cleveland reading the statement put out by the museum. Out of respect for the Native American tribes in Nagpra, the CMA has covered the display cases that contain items that might fit the new Nagpra definitions until the appropriate determinations can be made and if necessary consents obtained. In Chicago, the Field Museum covered several display cases containing cultural items from Native communities. Quote, pending consultation with the represented communities, we have covered all cases that we believe contain cultural items that could be subject to these regulations. Well, next, I will give you a quote in the Native News Online. This is Shannon O'Laughlin of the Choctaw Nation. She's the chief executive for the Association of American Indian Affairs. And she said of the Field Museum statement, quote, If they really were wanting to get the word out that this is an important requirement that we all must follow, that's a different way of saying it than they have in their press statement. It's not a statement of protection of tribal rights. It's not put forward as a positive thing for tribes, but in this abstract, nonsensical thing. Now, I, as a non-Indigenous person, I guess I'm Indigenous somewhere, not here, as a sometimes museum goer, as a white American who recognizes the sins of the past and would like to correct them as best we can, I see it a different way. It seems to me that American museum curators are actually trying to do the right thing. They just can't throw away scholarship. They have to follow regulations and they don't want to give remains to the wrong tribes, but they are trying. It's a lot easier to paint their efforts as an obstacle to healing, however. The Washington Post did a very long series about human remains at the Smithsonian. And the language in the newspaper, and this might just be inevitable given the subject matter, but it did seem constructed as to inevitably lead to the most anguished conclusions. Here, I'll read some. The Smithsonian would eventually acquire more than 280 brains from around the world. More than a quarter, 74 of the brains still held by the Smithsonian were from local people. According to documents reviewed by the Post, of those, 48 were black. At least 19 of the brains are described in documents as having been removed from fetuses, including one following an abortion. 17 came from children. Three were taken from people who died in the hospital that served the city's almshouse. One was taken from a deaf and mute man. 
Now, that just seems unconscionable. You don't want to keep hearing about it. It just seems horrible. It seems like of inherently violative. What it was in reality in 1903, which was a hundred over 120 years ago, was just how things were done. The sensitivities, the practices, the general pursuit of knowledge was a lot different from today. It was not more evil. It was not more purposefully cruel in the minds of those conducting it. It was just different. The Post writes of a 21-month-old who died and whose body was used for study in the Smithsonian. They contacted a relative of the child who died 119 years ago. And she was quoted as saying, it feels like my family was robbed of something. A child, especially of that age, can't speak up for themselves. True, a 21-month-old can't speak up for himself, but even if he could, this is so insensitive, but the child was dead when the brain was taken. The child wasn't killed for his brain. The child was in a situation in 1903 where it was quite common to take a body or a part of a body for medical science. I realize that I, Mike Pesca, am several standard deviations removed from the average person when it comes to issues of spirituality or belief in the afterlife, but it doesn't really matter what I think. I just default to what the next of kin might think. But someone they found this relative who didn't even know the circumstances of her 21-month-old ancestor's demise. And she said this understandable thing, oh, that seems horrible. But really, 120 years later, this Washington Post series portrayed the Smithsonian as if they were all a bunch of macabre grave robbers stealing brains like Dr. Frankenstein's assistant. But what this was, even if you think that's what was going on, it was what we would call pretty close to the state of the art of scholarship at the time. This is how they studied specimens. Seems horrible to call a 21-month-old baby a specimen, but that's how it was done. And now, and this is the important thing, it's being undone. Standards of consent didn't exist like they do now, but that's the point, now they do. I see all that's going on as progress and correcting what we now recognize correctly as a wrong. Instead, it seems more like an opening of wounds, a reminder of the ghoulishness that is more upsetting than not to the very communities being served by actual Nagpra enforcement. I suppose to heal wounds, we have to acknowledge wounds, but it seems to me like a bit or a lot of a missed opportunity to, to some extent, celebrate progress or experience collective solemnity. The entire culture of today, as far as I could tell, the 2024 culture is now in favor of doing the right thing, returning remains to their people. And isn't the positioning of the present, isn't that worth at least some measure of, I don't know, acknowledgement as we address the pain of the past. And that's it for today's show. Solo producing today was Corey Wara and his quaint mallard, mallard mate, Joel Patterson. We wish a get well soon. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertise.com slash the gist. Do peru, 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 and thanks for listening.